today, Dr. Patrick is speaking on spiritual economics, the success syndrome. On behalf of our spiritual community, we extend a very warm welcome to you, our first-time visitors, and to all of our participants in this morning's celebration. Now please join us for 30 seconds as we ground ourselves in silence. very room there's quite enough love for all the world and in this very room there's quite enough joy for all the world and there's quite enough love and quite enough power to walk through our every fear for spirit one spirit is in this very room in this very room In this very room. And I invite you with this next breath that you take to breathe deeply in a comfortable way and to continue to mindfully breathe deeply as we spend our time together today. It is in the breathing deeply that we activate the heart center and the intuition center as well as our minds. So I invite you as well as myself to listen and to speak from all three of those centers, those centers of intelligence that live and move and have their being within us. It is how the breath, as the Hindus talked about the breath of life, the Brahma, another name for God in that tradition. As we breathe in, we breathe in God, and as we breathe out, we breathe out God. The, the taking in and the releasing, it is a natural, natural activity. We do it constantly. And so as we move forward today, I recognize on behalf of each person here as well as myself, as I breathe deeply, knowing that my heart, my soul, my core, as well as my mind is open to possibility, to opportunity, that you and I, as we stand in this position, as we stand in this opening and willingness and this vulnerability, can partner with spirit in an amazing way. And so I give thanks beforehand for the right ideas being expressed today, the right music, the right notes the right insights, the right awarenesses, things lighting up within us in this moment and in moments hereafter in the right and perfect way, guiding, informing, and directing each and every one of us so that you and I continue to stand in, in co-creation, in concert with the symphony of life that God is everywhere in general but nowhere in particular until we decide, until we make a decision. So in our invitation, we are empowered beyond measure by affirming that that life, that one life, is alive within me because it is who I am. 
it lights up everything about us. And then I go about incorporating the practices in my life that allow me to live an even greater expression. We are here to be that expression, each one of us in a unique and amazing way. And I'm so grateful for this tradition. I'm so grateful for this teaching. I'm so grateful for all the wonderful mentors that have blessed my life with their wisdom, with their consciousness, with their love, and with their service, with their sharing freely, giving of themselves 100% and modeling for me a path, a doorway, and an invitation to step through. For this I give thanks, knowing every good thing is in divine right order for every one of us. I release these words in gratitude and appreciation and invite you to say with me, and so it is. I'm just so glad it finally snowed, aren't you? I mean, now we know. I've been just like every day, it's like, wow, another great day. And now I can think about something else when I go out every morning and say, oh, it's here, okay. But it was just so nice. Each day was like, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you, God. Not that we don't love the winter. We love the winter here, don't we? Well, that's my story, and I'm sticking with it. All right. So what, um, this, this month is a, really, when I, well, they're always my favorite month, but I, you know, I'm, I'm always on fire with this, this uh, information because I, I get to immerse myself in it. And we're, we're talking about this wonderful classic, Spiritual Economics, that was authored by Eric Butterworth, an amazing, amazing teacher, writer, minister, born in Winnipeg, moved down to the States, studied, and ended up with his ministry in New York City and, and impacted thousands and thousands of lives. And his beautiful classic continues to do that. So today, we're, today we want to look at... The success syndrome, there it is, which is one of the aspects, one of the chapters in the book, uh, the idea of faith, a grateful heart, and work. But before we get into that, I want to invite someone up to to share with us today because it really is an example of these principles uh, taking a a behavior into our lives. If you've been around me any length of time, you know that we are a very committed community to tithing. And tithing is giving giving back to in honor and appreciation for what has been given to us. And so it's a percentage. And as a community, we have committed to that. And even this last year when we were going through our budget and we asked for your support and help, the one area that we did not compromise on was our tithe. We continued to do that consistently, even though we were, we were projecting uh, slightly below our budget. And um, we never gave up that practice because that practice is such a foundational piece of reciprocity. It activates and it, it blesses, but it's all about the consciousness we do these things from. Because I know for a lot of people, it's like, oh man, that's an ancient Bible term. And people will say to me, oh, that comes out, you know, Jesus taught that. And I said, no, Jesus didn't teach that. The Jews taught that. But it's about giving back. It's about a life of giving. And it's not just about finances. And today's a discussion about that a bit. But I want to bring somebody forward that really stepped into this practice in a way that I received this email about a year ago and I thought this is one of the sweetest and most insightful and brilliant letters to articulate this practice and its its power of activating and stepping one into the flow of life in a bigger way. So I'm going to invite Dr. Jennifer Bowerman to come forward. And Dr. Jennifer did the first service and I said, "I'll, I'll do this at the beginning of my talk, second, so you can go out there and be on with your day. Not that she wouldn't want to stay for both of these brilliant talks, but you may have a, something else that you'd like to, uh, uh, I'll, let you, I'll let you hold that again. Okay. So this is Dr. Jennifer, and she's going to share with you a bit of how her journey and uh, some of the, the uh, results of that beautiful commitment. Well, I, I had come back to Edmonton after working overseas for a number of years, and I felt kind of a bit gray and a bit at a crossroads, and a, a person suggested that I 
might like to start attending here because it seemed to resonate with my beliefs. So I came and I really enjoyed it. And then um, there was this class called Prosperity Plus and she suggested that we might like to come to that together, which I did. And it just kind of something clicked. And I had always been fairly generous in terms of charitable giving, I suppose. Um, I always gave something. But then something clicked and I just decided, really, this is more than just giving money. It's about giving from an awareness of, of life and, and what that brings back to you. So I started to tithe very consciously and everything that came into my life in terms of money, I gave 10% back and, and, and I still kept up my other favorite charitable donations. I mean, I'm lucky because it's just me, but I could have done this my whole life. It just never occurred to me. So, and in doing it, it just kind of opened up so many doors because in some ways, in many ways, I got a permanent position. Um, I became a much more generous person, personally. I started smiling more, I was happier. And somehow or other, it just multiplied into a whole new me, or at least it feels like a whole new me. So it went Beautiful. from being a very transactional action to something that really, truly has been very transformational. Thank you. Beautiful. Thank you, Dr. Jennifer, for your sharing and for your service, your, your generosity of spirit to be with us today and, and share that. So I want to share that with you because I, I receive so, many, so much feedback from people that have adopted practices and things that have made such a huge difference in, in your life and their lives. And I know for myself that my journey, and it continues to be one, I, my, my journey is a, a continue, continuation. But what I know about it is, is that as I give to life, as I take a stand that I'm, I'm here to contribute, not just to consume, it's changed everything for me. And I say this to you not because uh, I want to manipula manipulate you into doing something that's you're, that you're not comfortable with, but what I know from my heart of hearts that to not stand here and share this with you from my heart and from my integrity, I am abdicating uh, an opportunity that I have because it is a powerful practice. And once we start to stand, and, and, and Butterworth's work here is such a, a, a testimony and a tribute to his beautiful intelligence and to this idea that we are, we are more than just here to consume and gather. So some of the ideas, and so what I would plant a seed with you today is with, with some of these ideas, four ideas, and I'll touch on them very briefly with the time that we have. But what I would ask you to contemplate underneath the, what I share with you today is what practice, what area in your experience that if you were to change it, the one thing that you could change, the one thing that you could view differently, the one thing that you could put down, whatever it may be, that may change everything. Because it can become overwhelming. Our spiritual practice can become overwhelming. And I'm not here to burden you. I'm not here to make it more work for you. What I'm really inviting you to do is to ask yourself the question, what thing can I do that might make life easier for me, more joyful, more healthy, more prosperous, more, more abundant? How can I stand in a flow? Why do some people, why do the rich get richer and the poor get poorer? What's that all about? 
And if, if we're to believe that, that consciousness precedes experience, then there's something going on. If we've all been given dominion over our experience, there's something going on within the individual that, that is bought into this idea that the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And so I want to share those ideas with you and see. But once again, what one thing, for myself as well, I'm living in this question right now. We don't need to know the answer. But what, what one answer would change everything? So the, I wanted to talk a little bit about success syndrome. Dr. Butterworth talks about in this uh, chapter the success syndrome and this idea that there's a, another side of the restlessness drive for success. We call it the success syndrome. It is a factor that is at once the key to success and the reason for much failure. Because a lot of times the tools that get us to the success are not the tools that will carry us forward into the next possibility. Uh, but many times we get, we get attached to this idea, well, it's my job. So my source is my job. Most people would, would agree and say my, your source is your job or your work or if you're retired, it's your, your pension or it's your, you know, whatever it may be. But that's just one source. But if we, we operate from the perspective that that's the one source, then what can the infinite do in our lives? And so the creative intention is vitally involved in you and I. There's a creative intention that is alive upon this planet. Thus, your desire to get ahead, your urge to succeed, is your intuitive awareness of something within you that wants to succeed through you. Holmes, Dr. Holmes called this the divine discontent, one of my favorite terms, because I, I was not domesticated this way. And so all of a sudden you realize, wow, because I love to create. I mean, I've always been creative. I always look at, I've always loved to bring newness to things. For me, and that's that builder consciousness in me, opportunity. It's like, wow, this is so cool. That's why I love carpentry so much growing up and in my youth when I was in, it was in Hollywood. I didn't want to wait tables. I wanted to be out building something. Because for me to look back and see a beautiful room addition or to see a new home being framed, and I worked with the framers, and then I became a cabinet maker. So my whole progression through that was one of refining my skills, refining my skills, refining my skills. Because it was interesting to me. I just loved all the newness and, and the learning. And then you could stand back at the end of the day and go, wow, there's something that has value for somebody else. And that just sparked something within me that just brought me joy. A simple little thing. And so when I read Butterworth's stuff, I can, I can so identify with what he was saying. And no one taught me this. No one, I mean, this was just inherent in me. They succeed in getting there. Many people succeed in getting there, but they are not really convinced of their right to be there. So this speaks volumes to not having the consciousness. If we don't develop the consciousness of the thing, and now, you know, out in the world, it, it looks differently. They don't talk about consciousness out there. They talk about a skill set. They talk about an attitude. But if we, don't, if we don't embody the consciousness, which is the sum total of belief, the sum total of experience that makes up our being, then we can't hold it. I watched a great uh, program the other day. Perhaps you've seen it. It's a documentary called Lucky. And in this documentary, they show people that have won the lottery. And the majority of people that win a lottery are not able to hang on to it which is interesting. And they showed one fellow, he lived somewhere in uh, Arkansas, or I can't remember where it was, but he got that money, and he, it was $16 million. He could not spend it fast enough. In fact, he was spending it so fast enough, it upset his brothers and sisters. Can you believe that? You're, you're, there'd be jealousy around money, $16 million to the family. I find that remarkable. So not only couldn't he hold it, but they couldn't hold it. And, so, and he did things like he went out and bought 1,400 pairs of the same color pants. Same size. And then, he, and then he built uh, room additions on top of this mansion he bought that were so heavy that they couldn't even drywall the walls because the foundation wouldn't hold it if it got any heavier. 
So anyway, but he was, he was circulating money, right? Because he had to get rid of it because it obviously was burning a hole in his, his 1,400 pairs of pants. And so we went through the whole story. And then what happened was his family got so upset because he was f- squandering the fortune that his brother hired a hitman to knock him off so he could become the executor of the estate. And so they, he didn't, he's still around and he's living in a tent somewhere now with a, but- a propane heater. You know, all the money's the 16 million has been... Uh, used. Anyway, at the end of it, they were talking to a friend of his, and he said, you know, winning the lottery for my friend, Carl, is an example of, of pouring miracle grow upon your character defects. <laughs> and I love that. I mean, it just nailed it. You know, no amount of money... If, if, if we are broke inside to the point where we can't hold it, it's just an example of consciousness. That, that it, is, it, makes us, you know, it makes us squirm, that it makes us have to get rid of it as fast as it comes. It's just an example that the consciousness isn't there. There's no place for it to, to land. There's no place for us to receive it. So this idea of life, the reason that with life and we have these challenges, I would say, is that what, what our soul is here for, what we are here for is, is contrast. This comes from Esther Hicks, and I adore Esther, but she always says our soul loves contrast. Because if we don't know the darkness, we won't ex- experience the joy. You know, we want to shut off all the negativity, but what, what happens when we shut off all the negativity is we can't feel the celebration of life. So as far as we can go on that spectrum that way, we can go over here. And it's just a beautiful thing when we understand it's all here to inform us and guide us and to, and to adjust ourselves, the t- trajectory. How can I build a, a greater capacity to give and receive? That's why I asked Dr. Jennifer to come up and share because what happens is, and this, this beautiful letter that I'll, I'll share with you over time is, that she wrote was really around how her life is, has lit up. She came in today and she said, I can't be here so much because I've, I've met this wonderful new guy in my life. And I said, good for, yeah, I said, good for you. But the point is, is that everything has shifted and changed for her. And, but unless we are using in the capacity, unless we are particularizing this, this, this presence that's everywhere in general but nowhere in particular, unless we are giving a specific instruction by, by the, the, the nature of who we are, it's just random. Dr. Holmes said one of the things about our teaching is we take ourselves out of living life through percentages. Eh, 50-50 chance it might work out. Eh, maybe. When in fact, what he would say is that as we continue to grow the capacity to manage our energy and to manage our consciousness and our awareness, to, to learn how to think is to learn how to live, we, 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 we shrink the, the percentages. And I like that. Not because I want to make sure that, it, that, it, that, that I'm always right or I'm always in the right place, but I want, to be, I want to be an efficient and effective outlet for the divine to be expressed. And so more ideas keep showing up and more ideas keep showing up. It's a beautiful thing. So they're succeeding in getting there, but they're not really convinced of their right to be there. One of the things is developing the consciousness, which is what we're all about here. And if you've come from way back, if you've come from a poor environment where, where nobody had anything of value that felt like to offer you, it's your opportunity to then look at that and to be able to lovingly put it down and to move forward. And it takes time. Success is not getting there. It's earning the right in consciousness to be there. And we do that through our practice, through our attitudes, through putting down things that don't work for us, by confronting our own small nature to make room for something more potent and something more vibrant. In, in other words, to, to, to not, limit our good, not limit our great by our good. 
Well, I watch people all the time come in and they're in pain and they're in suffering and all of a sudden the pain and suffering go away because they start to connect with that deeper presence within them. And, and, and that's a wonderful thing, but for many, that's the destination. Oh, man, I finally have some relief. Ah. And, it, and it's a beautiful thing. But it's just simply, there's another doorway to step through. There's no end destination in this. There's no, there's no place we get to where you go, man, I got this now. Got it covered. In fact, in Dr. Butterworth's book, he talks about this idea. People will say, well, geez, I've been doing my spiritual practice, and I'm doing my meditation, and I'm, I'm, I'm servicing. I'm, I'm being of service in the world, and I'm offering my tithes to be, where I'm spiritually inspired. I'm doing all these things. When am I going to get to the point where I don't have to do this anymore? And that, that would be like a professional athlete. I'd be like one of the Oilers or one of the Eskimos not working out anymore, saying, well, geez, I made it. I'm a starter on the team now. I got that done. Hmm. It doesn't work. What elite... Uh, performers do on the planet is they continually practice and practice and practice. And so if we make practice our way of life, if we have the awareness to realize, geez, I'm spinning back into those old behaviors and ways of thinking, and that's practice. We don't quit because we feel like we failed. Jesus, I, I said I was going to meditate every day and I only meditated four days this week. Oh, that doesn't work. I, it, it doesn't, it's just practice. It's working with ourselves effectively nurturing ourselves, coaching ourselves in a sense, stepping back from ourselves, not punishing ourselves. And this helps build the faith. So we ask our question, where's our faith? What do we have faith in? Dr. Butterworth brings this beautiful quote up. Uh, Religious teachings and teachers have conditioned us to think of faith as a magic catalyst that makes God work for us. That if I have enough faith, God will start to show up in my life. When in fact, in no way does faith make God work. Nor does it release some kind of magic power. Faith simply tunes into and and turns on a divine flow that has always been present. So what faith does, which is this, when I talk about it, when we come together and I say there's one life, that life is God's life, and I claim it as my own. Powerful, powerful, powerful practice because all of a sudden we've we've opened up the network, the vibrational frequency of of opportunity to listen and to be guided and directed, to be resourced and supported. And so it's not, a, it's not a, a, an activity where, we're in, where God is all of a sudden doing something for us again. It's really simply turning on that, that network of possibility. Once again, as Deepak says, everywhere in general but nowhere in particular until we particularize it. You do not receive what you want. You do not receive what you pray for. And not even what you say you have faith in. You will always receive what you expect. So to build an expectancy. Something wonderful is happening in my life. One of my favorite phrases now as I've been using in my prayer work is, this day is the best day of my life. Why not? Why, why get up and say, oh, this day I hope is okay. Oh, I hope this day I don't sit in traffic too long and that my hip doesn't hurt too much. And on and on and on and on. Why not set the intention and build it? This day is the best day of my life. There's going to be incredible learning. There's going to be incredible excitement. I'm going to meet people that are incredible, that inspire me, that I inspire them. There's a collaboration going on that I'm on fire with life. That this day is an amazing day. And you know what? Tomorrow will be even better. Work with that for a month and see what happens. What are we we attracting? I mean, it's just such a wonderful, but we get what we expect to build that expectancy. What is your work? What is your work? And how do you approach work is the next principle that we look at. The delusive delusive idea that men merely toil and work for the sake of preserving their bodies and procuring for themselves bread, houses, and clothing is degrading. It's not to be encouraged 
The true origin of man's activity and creativeness lies in his increasing impulse to embody outside of himself the divine and spiritual elements within him. We are, we are immersed in spirit. This is what, is what Frederick Froebel is saying. We are immersed in spirit. And we are also coming from spirit and, and bringing an aliveness and awareness to that in new ways and being open to that possibility and continue to nurture that relationship. He continues, let your work, whatever it may be involved, be an outworking of the creative flow engaged in through the sheer joy of fulfilling your divine nature. So it really doesn't matter what we're doing, but it's how we're doing it. And if we realize that it's about the divine flow, that's all different. And, 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 and it's exciting and interesting. And then, then we be just become a contagion for good, and all of a sudden people are looking at us go, wow, what's up with that person? Well, I'm, I'm here fulfilling my divine destiny of being creative and being productive. I've worked with so many great tradesmen over the years that would always say, one, one of my, the, the man that changed my life the most was a, a man that I, I um, did carpentry work with. And he instilled in me so many wonderful qualities that line up with this. He'd always say, at the end of the day, we want to be able to look back and be proud of what we did. And I love that. And, and so it became our mantra, let's do this the best we can, as quickly as we can, and as strongly as we can. And it was wonderful. And there was never a shortage of work. But it was just simply because we made that, that one decision that he inspired in me, that he modeled for me, to always bring your best to whatever you're doing, to always make it a giving process. See, if you're in a lousy job that you can't stand right now, the fastest way out of it is to find ways to love it and to find ways to pour your energy into it. That's the fastest way out. But that's, counter, that's counterintuitive. Why would I want to do that? I already hate the job. But I, I got news for you. If you're in the consciousness of disliking what you're doing and in that consciousness go find another job, you'll find another job that will replace exactly, you may be doing something different, it'll be the same experience. But once you, you know, Marsha Sutton always says you have to be free enough to stay to, to be free enough to go. And I, that has been a huge learning in my life. Cahill Gibran says, lay it, he lays it right on the line when he says, if you cannot work with love but only with distaste, then you should quit your job and go sit at the temple and beg for alms for those who work with joy. And that's so true. If we can't do whatever we're doing with love, stop doing it. If you can't, if you can't give with the with consciousness of love and gratitude and appreciation, don't give. If you're giving out of obligation in any way, shape, or form, it just diminishes you. We have to earn, as I said, we have to earn our wings every day. This is not a practice that we get to and it's all where I got this down. The grateful heart. And I know this is quick, a lot of material, but I'm touching on these things and we'll keep revisiting it over the next couple of weeks. But the grateful heart. Walt Whitman said, oh, while I live to be the ruler of life, not a slave. Not a slave to the world, but the ruler of my own life, which means that the interior of my being and how I see things. This too, as as Jesus used to say, this does not move me. Be in the world, but not of the world. To meet life as a powerful conqueror and, not, and nothing exterior to me shall ever take command of me. So not losing ourselves in the world, not spinning in despair. We've all done that. The reason we did that is so we know that that's not a practice we want to do anymore. So, so, we, and so when we can ground ourselves in our, in our beingness and understand who we are, eternal souls on this journey together, here to create and be an outlet for the infinite, Gratitude releases a vital energy that draws to you opportunities, employment, and secure flow of substance. And it does. Finding things throughout our day. I was, I was listening to Sparrow sing. I was sitting in the, the hallway there. 
And I started, all of a sudden, all these people that had mentored and taught me over the years, all these beautiful uh, coaches I had in athletics and teachers I had in school that impacted me. There was a nun when I was, uh, uh, was in grade 11 in high school. And uh, I gave my girlfriend a ride to try out for the high school play. She said, can you give me a ride over there? I said, sure. And I went, I was sitting in the hallway waiting for her to get done auditioning. She was auditioning for Maria, the West Side Story. And the nun says, uh, do you want to sing? And I could always sing. I said, sure, I'll come in and sing. So I went in and I sang. And I read a few lines. And I went to school the next day and people were coming up and congratulating me. And I'm like, what? And they said, well, you're going to be Tony in West Side Story. And I said, who the heck is Tony in West Side Story? I had no clue. But I don't know if I would, I would be as comfortable uh, being able to, to prepare myself to share with you if that woman had not opened that door for me. And I just think, of, I look at the synchronicity of that. What if I said, ah, get there yourself. I'm not giving you an old ride to no play audition. But the synchronicities of life and people that come up and bless us and, and create an opening for something new. And I just think, oh man, thank you, Sister Marion. You know, I went to a Catholic high school. Thank you, Sister Marion. We had this amazing theater department in my high school. I didn't go there. I didn't have a choice, you know. But I went there and all of a sudden it was like, wow, this amazing woman. Everything begins to work in your life when we're in gratitude in an, in an orderly and creative way. When we have a grateful heart. Our work, our work can be, as Butterworth says here, should be a giving process. Don't get trapped in the error of equating what you earn with what you do. Don't make that mistake of that's it. I earn what I do. Opening ourselves to possibility, to creativity, to opportunity, to who knows what. Let your work, whatever it may involve, be an outworking of the creative flow engaged in through the sheer joy of fulfilling your divine nature. I love that. My divine nature is to give. Look at, look at all the snow that just showed up. Is that not abundance? And all of them look differently. Can you imagine what God's... He's probably up late doing all, designing all those different geometric patterns. <laughs> if we think of the God of the Old Testament peeking down at us and judging us, waiting till we die and then doing our agenda and sending us to that place where it's warm all the time. <laughs> oh yeah, that was an exciting idea that sure got me in the doors of the church every Sunday. Life is a growth process, as Butterworth says, and we grow through giving. Thus, no matter what the circumstance, if one, ever, if one ever does less than his very best in what he may be doing, no matter what the recognition or reward, he is storming up what the Easterners might call bad karma. Can I show the movie? Sure. I have a wonderful movie I want to show you about what one thing and I know a lot of you have probably seen this. This is about the wolves being reintroduced to Yellowstone Park. It's four and a half minutes. But it is beautiful because it speaks volumes to when we look at... Thank you. I'll be quiet now. One of the most exciting scientific findings of the past half century has been the discovery of widespread trophic cascades, 
A trophic cascade is an ecological process which starts at the top of the food chain and tumbles all the way down to the bottom. And the classic example is what happened in the Yellowstone National Park in the United States when wolves were reintroduced in 1995. Now, we, we all know that wolves kill various species of animals, but perhaps we're slightly less aware that they give life to many others. Before the wolves turned up, they'd been absent for 70 years. But the numbers of deer, because there was nothing to hunt them, had built up and built up in the Yellowstone Park. And despite efforts by humans to control them, they'd managed to reduce much of the vegetation there to almost nothing. They'd just grazed it away. But as soon as the wolves arrived, even though they were few in number, they started to have the most remarkable effects. First, of course, they killed some of the deer, but that wasn't the major thing. Much more significantly, they radically changed the behavior of the deer. The deer started avoiding certain parts of the park, the places where they could be trapped most easily, particularly the valleys and the gorges. And immediately, those places started to regenerate. In some areas, the height of the trees quintupled in just six years. Bare valley sides quickly became forests of aspen and willow and cottonwood. And as soon as that happened, the birds started moving in. The number of songbirds and migratory birds started to increase greatly. The number of beavers started to increase because beavers like to, to eat the trees. And beavers, like wolves, are ecosystem engineers. They create niches for other species. And the dams they built in the rivers um, provided habitats for otters and muskrats and ducks and fish and reptiles and amphibians. The wolves killed coyotes and as a result of that, the number of rabbits and mice began to rise, which meant more hawks, more weasels, more foxes, more badgers. Ravens and bald eagles came down to feed on the carrion that the wolves had left. Bears fed on it too, and their population began to rise as well, partly also because there were more berries growing on the regenerating shrubs. And the bears reinforced the impact of the wolves by killing some of the calves of the deer. Here's where it gets really interesting. The wolves changed the behavior of the rivers. They began to meander less. There was less erosion. The channels narrowed. More pools formed. More riffle sections, all of which were great for wildlife habitats. The rivers changed in response to the wolves. And the reason was that the regenerating forests stabilized the banks so that they collapsed less often, so that the rivers became more fixed in their course. Similarly, by driving the deer out of some places and the vegetation recovering on the valley sides, there was a soil erosion because the vegetation stabilized that as well. So the wolves, small in number, transformed not just the ecosystem of the Yellowstone National Park, this huge area of land, but also its physical geography. Isn't that, uh, it's, for me, it always just puts me right on the edge of cracking me open. 
what, what small thing will make all the difference for you or I? You know, to straighten the river. So we, we, I love it that it collapses less. What is the one thing you and I can carry forward from this or, or to nurture or to welcome into our experience where we, where we collapse less? Because it's so easy to collapse with the, with the weight of the world sometimes. And to realize this one thing is such a great example of what's possible for all of us. We don't have to change it all. But what's the next impactful step? Maybe it's to be more loving and kind to ourselves when we catch ourselves in a behavior we've agreed to not do anymore and to build that consciousness, whatever it may be. So what I know as we, as we have the opportunity to share our, our good this day, I invite you to contemplate how you're giving and what consciousness you may be sharing from. You know, as, you, as I've said many times, thank you so much for your generous generosity. We continue to be a tithing community because we know the principle of that and how powerful that is and the transformative energetic flow that is. So as you participate in this, this giving in this moment, I just thank you for being part of this movement of possibility, of the willingness to look at our lives in, a, in an impactful way and being able and willing to step up and continue to be in the ever-expanding growing of our own souls and our possibility. So what I give thanks this day as I close my eyes and bless our offering, knowing that each and every one of us, we take a stand together to thrive upon this planet, to stand tall with one another and know that something wonderful is finding its way in and through and as us, and that everything we do through work, through service, through sharing our financial good, all of it is a touchstone of possibility to continue to build the faith, to continue to give birth to the new ideas, to stand together in that possibility of goodness, creativity, and opportunity. For this I give thanks, and together we say, and so it is.